This morning we're concluding a series entitled Jesus Revealed, in which we're looking at um, the season of Epiphany and the reality that Jesus has been declared to us to be the Son of God, and we're looking at the Bible and the Gospel text in particular to see how Jesus has been revealed to be a uniquely special type of human being. And when we say unique, we mean one of a kind. He's the only one who's ever come who's been the Son of God, God himself. Last week, uh, I was out of town because I was visiting my parents in Michigan, and it was a really nice visit, but I really missed being here, and I'm really grateful for Daniel preaching last week and, um, and taking that on. We've been looking at different texts, and the text we looked last week is a good text for me to summarize as we kind of launch into this week. Um, Jesus last week goes to his disciples, and he starts to ask them, who do people say that I am? And they say, you know, you're like Moses, or you're like Elijah, you're like a special prophet. And um, Jesus says to them, or he asks them, who do people say I am? And they say, they say this, and then Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are right, and I'm going to build my church on you. And then the very next section, and Daniel went over all this, but I want to cover it again. The very next section, Jesus tells his disciples for the first time, I am going to suffer and be handed over to people who will kill me, and I will rise from the dead. And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, I would never allow people to kill you. I would never let that happen to you. And Jesus turns, looks Peter in the eye, and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not do the will of God. That's extreme language, isn't it? That's very extreme language. He's just told them how awesome he is, and that he's going to build the entire enterprise of the church after him. You know, it's going to be founded on him. But in the very next interaction, the very next conversation, it's, it's not a break in the scene. It's the same conversation, right? I think you are awesome. I think you are like Satan. Yes? You understand? The very next words Peter says, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because we can understand the authority and the power of Jesus, the power of God, but if we don't understand who God is, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. We can understand that God is authoritative, and if we misunderstand his description of who he is, we can have our thoughts belong to the realm of darkness. Does this make sense? But when Jesus confronts Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, God does not hold our sins against us. We need to learn this lesson. We probably should read Psalm 03 regularly, right? Your sins are as far as the east is from the west, and, you know, the Lord is slow and compassionate and gracious. He does not hold our sins against us. And Peter will fail again later, and he will be forgiven again later, and he will fail, and he will be forgiven, and he will be forgiven, and he will be forgiven like we are because God longs for us. And yet, in this little episode, it kind of sets the tone for the section that we're looking at. For in this little episode, we're seeing that the disciples are understanding who Jesus is at a deeper way, in a deeper way. And now we come, this morning, to an incredibly odd little passage. In fact, I'm convinced that 
what I'm going to say this morning is true, but I'm convinced I don't understand most of what this passage is talking about. I'm convinced I'm saying things that are true to you that I will say about it, but I'm leaving a lot unsaid. And the reason I'm leaving those things unsaid is because I don't know what to say about them. Yes? We come to a passage called the Transfiguration. And this Sunday, actually, in the church calendar is actually Transfiguration Sunday. That Sunday in which we celebrate that Jesus has been transformed. Now, he doesn't need to be transformed. He's perfect the way he is. When we say that Jesus was transfigured, what we mean is we are seeing Jesus now in a different way than we saw him before. He was always that beforehand, and he, was always, he will always be this afterwards. But have you ever been around someone, and you get to be very close friends with them, and they're like a big deal. They're like an important person. And all of a sudden, you go into a different arena, and somebody introduces, and everybody's like, oh, your dad's famous. It is so cool to be with your dad or whatever, but, but you just know him as your dad, right? The disciples have been following Jesus for three years, and they know he's a unique and special person, but as much as they've seen, they've seen miracles after miracles and teachings that are unlike any teaching that have ever taken place, and yet still the disciples fully don't understand, and I'm sure they don't fully understand this afterwards, but they understand more, because Jesus right in front of their eyes is changed. And then he changes back, and it's like it never happened. The text that we're looking at this morning is Matthew chapter 17, 1 through 13. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. As you turn there, I just got a few words of announcements I want to draw your attention to. The first is, you'll notice at the door we have a new a monthly newsletter that we're using to just communicate the major things that are happening in the month and our discipleship pathway And we would invite you to take one of these. It'll say the things that are coming up in the future that are really important that we'd like to have your eyes on. It also has a place on the back for sermon notes if that's something you want. Um, This little thing will tell you about two uh, things that are coming up in the next week that I want to make sure your, your attention is on. The first is our Ash Wednesday service, which is this coming Wednesday. We would like you, we would invite you to come out and we would like it if you'd make the time to do so because we believe it would be helpful to you on a spiritual level. Ash Wednesday begins a season in, our, in the church year in which we prepare ourselves for Easter, in which we remember our sinfulness and our mortality in light of the immortality of Christ and the immortality he will give us, that we will live forever and that our sins are forgiven. Ash Wednesday begins that time of year. The Lenten season, which begins with Ash Wednesday, has traditionally been a time when people would give up something so that they can focus on Christ in a new way. You can do this or you cannot do this. You can share with other people that you're doing it or not share what you're doing. Sometimes people will give up sugar. Sometimes they will give up social media. Sometimes they'll give up video games. Maybe I'll talk my kids into that, yeah? Yeah. Um, I would think that would be a forced giving up on their behalf if I do that. So I probably won't. But... Um, Ash Ash, uh, Wednesday begins the Lenten season, which begins a time where we focus afresh, where we give up so that we can get something unique, where we have space in our hearts, where we have space in our minds for the reality of Christ. And so we invite you into all of that, and we invite you to begin it this Wednesday with us. You'll notice in the uh, monthly news, we also have one other thing that we want to keep your attention on. Next week, we start a brand new sermon series that will cover the five weeks of Lent, and it's going to be called Humanity Revealed. We've seen what Jesus looks like, and now we're going to see what humanity looks like apart from God. We are going to specifically be looking at in these five weeks 
uh, sermons are passages from Genesis, the early passages from Genesis, in which we see that right from the beginning, although humanity was created innocent and free, that they used their innocence and their freedom to go against the will of God. And very early on, humanity turned to disbelief and hate and pride and greed and taking good things and making them ultimate things in a way that would destroy them. And we're going to see in this series how these decisions, how these beliefs, these behaviors, how they destroy our lives and how Jesus lived as the perfect human, undoing the attitudes and thoughts of hate and pride and disbelief and greed and lust and all of those things. And so it's a sermon series for us to focus afresh on who we are apart from God and to remember that we are to walk in the footsteps of Jesus who was undone the worst of who we are, and made it possible for enter into the best of who we can be. But this morning, we conclude Jesus revealed with the transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Let me read it aloud, and then we'll try to make some sense of it. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if it is good for us to be here, if you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and they were terrified. But Jesus came, he touched them, and he said, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one there except for Jesus. And so as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and comes first and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but had done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So as we've seen in every week of this series, these uh, past six weeks and now in this and our seventh, we've seen that these texts reveal to us something about Jesus and it reveals something about our choice that we must make in light of Jesus. So first, what does this text show us about Jesus? It shows us that Jesus is the glory of God in human form. That Jesus is the glory of God in human form. The author of the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. The author of Colossians, Paul, says that he, in the deity of God, uh, in Jesus, the deity of God, it dwells in bodily form. That Jesus is the glory of God in human form. We get this from this text because we see that as Jesus takes his disciples onto the mountain, that Jesus on the mountain in verse 2 is transformed or transfigured and his face begins to shine 
and his garments become white as light. Now, there's another famous passage in the Old Testament. It's found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 34. In this passage, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, actually for a second time. He goes up for the first time, and he gets the law of God from God himself up on the mountain, and he comes back down, and the Israelites are all in the, uh, in the, the shadow of the mountain. They are, they are worshiping a foreign god, Baal, that they created out of gold earrings and jewelry that the people had. And Moses gets really, really angry, and so he breaks the tablets of the law. And so God has Moses go back up onto the mountain. And when Moses goes back up onto the mountain, he receives the law a second time. And when he comes back down, the Bible tells us that Moses' face had been come into contact with God. And so his face was radiant or it was shining. In fact, it was shining that the peop- so much and so brightly that the people of Israel, when Moses came down from the mountain, they were afraid and they forced Moses to put a veil on his head so that they wouldn't be afraid of the presence of God that was just reflected on his face after he had spent time with God. Now, what's so interesting here about Matthew chapter 17 is that a voice from heaven declares that this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But notice with me that that happens in verse 5 and that Jesus begins to shine and his clothes turn white as light before the voice comes, before contact with God, right? In the famous passage in Exodus 34, Moses goes up onto the mountain and when he comes into contact with God, the reflection of the light causes his face to shine. But here in the transfiguration, Jesus shines all on his own. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Jesus shines all on his own before any reflection. The implication here is that Jesus is fully God in human form, that the glory of God shines on him in himself, that he is not a conduit in which he holds the brightness and the shining of God, but he himself is God in bodily form. The prophets of the Old Testament, even John the Baptist, who the text will allude to here in just a second or refer to, were all people pointing to God, right? They were all people pointing, saying, there's the one that's going to come. And maybe they didn't point to anybody because at the time they were looking into the future. Now, John the Baptist points right at Jesus and says, literally, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we know even later on that John the Baptist begins to doubt. Are you really the one or should we look for another? And on the Mount of Transfiguration, near the end of Jesus' ministry, before he will go to Jerusalem shortly to be killed, he is transfigured on the mountain so that the disciples get a different vision of who he already was, but so that they could see it. He is the fullness of God in bodily form. He is the glory of God in human form. He is not a person pointing to God, but he is God himself. For the voice speaks from heaven after the shine has already happened. And do you notice in our text, this is so fascinating to me. There's so much in here I do not understand, but this is fascinating. Do you notice that in this text, in Matthew 17, that the disciples themselves are not afraid after Jesus shines? 
You remember like from the Exodus text, it's the shine of Moses that makes them terrified. But here, it is not the shine of Jesus that makes them terrified, is it? It is the voice from heaven that speaks and says, in the same way as the baptism that we looked at uh, five weeks ago, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased from Matthew chapter three. It's the same exact language. And the disciples are terrified. They're terrified. And Jesus comes to them and says, they've put their heads down and there's Moses and Elijah and there is the voice from heaven in this heavy cloud that has surrounded them and there is Jesus shining like a light bulb, both his face and his clothes. This is why I have a hard time understanding it. Do you see what I'm talking about? And the disciples put their heads between their laps and they close their eyes. Sometimes we do this as humans. We think if we close our eyes, what is there won't be there, you know? It's kind of stupid if you think about it. Um, You know, something bad is coming. It's not there, it's not there, you know? And so they close their eyes, and here comes Jesus. And I hope you see his beauty. He puts his hand on their shoulder, and he says, get up, do not be afraid. And the disciples get up, Peter, James, and John, And there is Jesus, just like they've always seen him. Just like they've always seen him. Normal. (laughs) If you can call Jesus the human human God-man in bodily form, normal. But there he is, like they've always been used to seeing him. No more Moses and Elijah. No more cloud. No more bright nuclear reaction light type thing, you know? Just Jesus. But yet, he was always there... The, the vision they see in the transfiguration is the Jesus they've always seen. It's just that they're getting a glimpse into a reality that they don't always see. I think that God, and I think we need to see him this way. I think that God is so high and far above us that we possibly can't understand and grasp him all. Does this make sense to you? God is so much bigger than we could ever possibly understand. The theological term for this is he is transcendent. He is other than us. He is bigger than us. And all of our attempts to understand him will fall short of who he is. For he is so high above us. And yet, although that transcendent reality of God is true, do you notice that so much of the scriptures are about God himself trying to make himself known to us? That's the point of Jesus. That's the point of the Bible. So that the unknowable God may be known to us humans because God comes near to us. The theological word for this is imminence. He comes near. He puts his hand on our shoulder and he says, do not be afraid. For the amazing, magnificent, otherworldly God has come near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And do you know what that means? It means he longs to know you and for you to know him. That he loves you and he cares for you. And that he does not think the details of your life too insignificant for himself to get involved with. And because he is all-powerful, he somehow has the capacity to handle it all. Do you understand? He is transcendent, completely other, and he is imminent, completely near. 
And this God revealed to us in Jesus, the same God we see on the mountain, bright lights, heavy clouds, Moses and Elijah proclaiming his coming is the same Jesus who will then very shortly die on the cross and suffer so that the glory of God might come to humankind. For the transcendent God is willing to give up his glory so that we might have it. Isn't that beautiful? The transcendent God who is completely other than us, is willing to give up his glory so that we might be a part of that glory. That is what Jesus reveals. Jesus reveals that Jesus is fully God in human form. That he gave up his glory so that we might have it. And in the giving up of his glory, he does not lose it. For God has highly exalted, because of, his, because of the cross, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That is not humility. That is exaltedness. Yes? And so what is our choice? As we look at this God who is so above us and yet so near us, who is so magnificent and who who still loves us so much, what is our choice? It is the same choice that the disciples have. And it's not going to make sense right away, but I'm going to hopefully show it to you. Our choice is, Now that Jesus has come, will we believe that evil really has been defeated? Now that Jesus has come, our choice is to choose to believe or not that evil really has been defeated. I love to cook. I really do love to cook. And perhaps I'll invite you guys over to dinner one time. I say you guys generally, but some of you I've invited to dinner. And one of these days you'll you'll come over to my house for dinner maybe if I invite you. Because that's how it works. You just don't knock on my door and say, I want dinner now. I won't be ready, you know? And a dinner party that I throw takes time to be ready. So, but let's say I invite you over for dinner and say, I have something very special planned for you and I can't wait for you to come, right? And then you come over and I serve you the dinner and you turn to me and you say, so what was that special thing that you were going to make? And I say, oh, I, uh, I already served it to you. You see, I already served it to you. This is kind of what's going on in the transfiguration text. The disciples see the glory of God and they see it all and they're terrified and then they're encouraged and Jesus gently touches them on the shoulder and says, do not be afraid and stand up. And then do you know what they do? They turn to Jesus and they say, why then... Do teachers of the law, verse 10, say that Elijah must come first? What they're saying is, they are looking towards that day, I'll show you this in a second, that God will defeat all evil and that the glory of God will be on earth as it is now in heaven. And so the disciples say, they're interpreting Jesus' transfiguration and they're saying to themselves, We see who he is. We see what he's done. We've seen Moses and Elijah. We've seen the cloud. We've seen Jesus now come and tap us on the shoulder and say, do not be afraid. And now Jesus has told us, don't tell anybody. The great day is coming. And the disciples say, but I thought Moses, or I thought Elijah has to come first. Now, where does this come from? 
And I'm going to bring it back to evil. You only have to turn a few pages over. It comes from the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It's on page 7 and 80, and it's only 18 pages that you have to turn back. It's a great prophecy. It's like the last prophecy that's given to the nation of Israel before uh, what is known as the intertestamental or silence, silent period begins, when there's no more words from God, no more prophets, no more prophecies. So this is the final prophecy until the time when Jesus comes. And in this very famous prophecy, the prophet Malachi, 400 years before Jesus is born, says this, Surely the day is coming, and it will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will stumble, and the day is coming that will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty, for not a root or a branch will be left to them, but... But for those of you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you will go out and you will frolic like well-fed calves. (laughs) Then you will trample on the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet and on on that day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. For remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. For see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. Do you see that? The prophet Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. It's a prophecy of the glory of God coming to earth. It's a prophecy of evil being finally and forever defeated. And the disciples ask a question that is informed by Malachi chapter 4. For we have heard that Elijah must come before evil can finally and forever be defeated. So where is Elijah? And do you see what Jesus' response is in verse 11? To be sure, Elijah must come before all things can be restored. But I tell you, he already has come, right? And they did not recognize him, but they have done everything they wished to him. Now, this is, this is a, uh, a euphemism, right? This is making light of it, but what they mean is, They have made him suffer and imprisoned him. And finally, John the Baptist has his head cut off. Not that you need those details, but there they are. And so Jesus says in the same way, the son of man, a title for himself, is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. What Jesus is saying is that everything has taken place for evil to be defeated. And in fact, now, as a result of what has happened on the cross, very shortly after Jesus gives these words, evil already is defeated. Evil already is defeated. The point of this is that, and this is so beautiful, even as we have the communion elements right in front of us, evil did its worst to Jesus, and it could not overcome him. Evil did its worst to Jesus, and it was not able to defeat him. Satan, when he thought he was at, or evil, when he thought he he was at his moment of triumph, was actually at his moment of defeat, right? And if evil has done its worst to Jesus and cannot defeat him, then we are told that Jesus tells us that evil can do its worst to you but it cannot defeat you. Do you believe that? That evil can do its worst to you, but it cannot defeat you. I know this can kind of feel, you know, 
<laughs> you know, that we could use another illustration, you know, if like, um, I have really something special for you for Christmas, you know, and then you get the special thing. You say, well, what's the special thing? You're like, oh, you just got, I, that's a question of disappointment. Do you understand? It's a question of disappointment. And I understand the disappointment of the disciples because as evil seems to thrive on earth, we are told it's already been defeated. And yet, I think a lot of us look at the evil that seems to thrive and we say to ourselves, why isn't it gone? You know, it's nice that it's been defeated and it cannot crush me, but it would kind of be nice if you just get rid of it, please. Does that make sense? I wish it was that way, but it is not right now. We are promised it will. But now we are in a moment of, uh, a moment where faithful hope must be exercised. For there's only a time of faithful hope when the thing that we long for the most has not come yet. And the thing that you and I long for the most, I think, at least I know I do, is for evil to finally and forever be vanquished. And yet we are not in that time right now But evil did its worst to Jesus, and it could not defeat him. In fact, it brought him his time of greatest triumph. And evil can do its worst to you, but it cannot defeat you. The choice this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, Do not be afraid. Some of you will recognize this. this. Do not be afraid of the one who can destroy your body, but fear the one who can destroy your body and soul. Yes? Do not be afraid of the one who can destroy your body. I think sometimes we as Christians, I think we are, I think we are particularly vulnerable to this erroneous way of thinking as Americans, actually. Because for so long, we have lived as the majority in our country, that we believe that our country uh, is this Christian nation and we see it as persecution, that we're not as Christian as we used to be, right? I think this is, this is something I've heard from many people often. And I know I'm kind of in dangerous ground right here, but here's the deal. Christianity has always thrived in the margins of society. Christianity has never thrived in a world of triumphalism where we are the majority and we force people to do what we want them to do on force and violence. That's what's the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Salem witch trials. Like, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? These are not good events, yes? Christianity thrives in the margins. Christianity changed dramatically in 300 AD when Constantine said, I will become a Christian because he saw this vision in the sky. And from that time, Christianity has had to deal with the temptation of a sickness to believe that we can force other people into our way of thinking. But the way that the gospel advances is through suffering. And the way that evil is defeated is through suffering. I do not want for you to suffer. I certainly don't want for myself to suffer. I can barely watch my wife get an epidural without fainting, yes? That's why I went out of the room when she had the last two babies. I do not long for suffering. But I want to believe. I have a hard time believing it at times. I want to believe 
and I believe that evil cannot crush me no matter what may come. And so, as we take communion this morning and as we hold the elements of his broken body and shed blood, it is a reminder to us to be patient for there is more going on than meets the eye. And while evil may look to reign at times, it will not conquer for it has already been defeated. I know there's more going on in the transfiguration, but that's enough for a Sunday today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the gift of Jesus who died so that we might have life, who gave up his glory so that we might have glory, and in the meantime has been exalted to a place that is above every place. And so this morning as we transition and go to the communion table, we go before you now as we take these elements and we remind ourselves that we will be faithful no matter the cost, that we will follow no matter the cost. And I pray that you would use these elements to nourish us and empower us to faithfully follow you no matter what. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. At this time in our service, we invite you to come forward.